If you deliver more value over time to your end users than your competitors, you'll win. This is SaaS Scaled, the podcast where data meets action with host Armand Schrocki. Each week, Armin will be sitting down with CEOs and industry leaders from the technology sector, giving you the insight to innovate without reinventing the wheel. They'll discuss challenges, best practices, and how to identify the right metrics. So if you want to get to market faster and in a way that matters, then subscribe and join us every week as we discuss SaaS scale. This episode is brought to you by Curve, the modern no-code analytics solution for SaaS companies on AWS. The tools you need to take action with your data on a platform built for maximum scalability, security, and cost efficiencies. If you're ready to reduce complexity and dramatically lower costs, then contact us today at Curve.com. That's Q-R-V-E-Y.com. Hello, I'm pleased to have Matthew Hemmelstein as my guest, uh, he's a VP of product at Wanola. He has been serial founders, entrepreneurs in tech world, now in charge of product in a growing company in Silicon Valley. We are going to share some experiences with SaaS companies, product brains, product strategists. I'm pretty sure this will be a great session. I'm going to start with asking Matthew if you could please introduce yourself and also explain about the company a little bit and the problems that you guys solve. Armand, thank you so much for having me today. Very appreciative of the, of the time. My name is Matthew Himmelstein. I'm currently VP of product at a company called Wonolo. Wonolo stands for Work Now Locally. We bill it as the Uber for temp staffing. It's the largest platform for blue collar gigs in the United States. If you need a job in a warehouse, you can just download the app and like go get a gig job, like, you know, putting stuff in boxes or moving things around. And really over the past couple of years during COVID, we've had some pretty good, like strong hyper growth. My background actually, I started, you know, about like 11 years ago, I got into tech uh, as an entrepreneur. You know, I ended up founding or co-founding three different companies, ended up being a product leader at uh, several other places. And then right before Winolo, I was actually an entrepreneur in residence at Eventbrite, where I worked directly with the, the executive staff in terms of addressing business constraints before stuff happens. I've been at Winolo a couple of years now, uh, just over two years. And during my time, we kind of overhauled product and really kind of focused on aligning product with business growth. Well, we've been pretty successful and I'm excited to share some tips. Well, there are many fronts we can start with, but let me just start with this general question, you have been, you know, again, founding companies and now you're in charge of product. If there is a founder who wants to start a SaaS company today, you would advise him to start from the product side or then, you know, of course you have to start from somewhere, but would you start from the product to find the match with the market or you would start from hey, what is the right market? And then I would go and just think about the product afterwards. Yeah, it's a great question, Armand. You know, I think at the end of the day, if you're really going to start a company, the thing that you need to understand is like, what problem are you going to solve? You know, and then who is that for? Right. And, and out of that uh, exploration into that solution, 
you will uncover how big the market is and if a product or software-based solution is the best way to do that. I mean, there's plenty of ways that you could solve problems with like pretty light, no-code-based solution these days. I mean, literally, there's a whole uh, industry standing up around like no-code, but some businesses are essentially run off a spreadsheet. And, you know, maybe that's, you know, what, what you need to do for you. I think it gets a little bit more interesting after you've kind of gone through that first phase of problem and kind of validated how big the market opportunity is and realize that you need a unique software-based solution. And then when it comes to SaaS, the thing that classically is the most disruptive is if you're able to break down the overall, what I would call the value chain of a specific category or industry and understand how to eliminate a step. And we've done that in a variety of different ways throughout my career, but also most recently at Wonolo. You know, so like at Wonolo, just to give you insights, one of the things that we do is within the staffing world, you know, you can imagine, you know, the people who need temporary staff, they want to like, you know, they need 10 people to move a bunch of boxes at a warehouse or drive a forklift. And classically, they would like interview those people ahead of time. And then they, you know, after they'd interview 10 people, they bring in five. And then, you know, maybe three of them, they'd have to keep around long term. Well, Winola, we kind of flip it. So, you know, the thing that we understand the most is that, uh, that the time cost of that interview process is pretty significant. And the only thing that matters in the long term is how you would hold on to those last three. So we make it, we can eliminate an entire step in the entire like matching process. And so we make it significantly easier for our customers to be able to onboard SimpSaf like at scale and work even just short-term jobs. And so by eliminating that that step in the value chain process of like interviewing, we made a, a, a pretty disruptive business and it helped us become the number one platform for on-demand staffing in the United States. So one point I would like to mention here is the fact that you align the same line that you mentioned, that really time is the essence. Time is getting more expensive money is getting more and more, but time is not going to get more and more. Time is just limited, never gets, you know, more, it's never get less expensive. So the value prop, if the SaaS company is actually saving time, it's a strong value prop. So in your case, by automation, by maybe changing the process, by any way that you are, for customers, they use the service and they are saving their time. Yeah, definitely. You know, I think the raw time calculation is is definitely like important but if you think about most businesses there's some kind of like funnel somewhere where you have like a conversion on every single step of the funnel and just simply by eliminating one step like two things happen a it's faster right obviously like there's one less step so it takes less time but b your conversion is higher right because since you eliminated a step where you lose people or you know something in the process, your endpoint conversion is is higher. And you know, very specifically for you know staffing industry, you know we look at things like the the cost to find a worker and help them activate by working like that first job. The activation costs for Winolo are roughly ten percent. Of kind of like what they are for the industry standard. And that's because we've eliminated so many steps and eliminated so much time. And so like, you know, very quickly, you can see how 
disruptive software from a product perspective can have pretty significant, you know, business impact. Like if you're like any business whatsoever, if you said the raw materials that I'm going to like grab and like sell to other and resell to other people, if I get it for 10% of the cost that everybody else does, that creates a significant competitive advantage. Makes perfect sense. And now we, when we are talking about SaaS versus purely software in old days, SaaS has many elements there, right? So you are talking about the data part, you are talking about the collaboration part, and users can come in and you know add value to the platform and what you are doing. Even sometimes you can just make many of those self-service, those actions, so they can actually take some of those actions. Then the data component is there, and of course the technology and automation and software part is there. And all of them combined, then adds the value and creates that value that software as a service is now in place. In the business that you have started or you are involved now, how do you see, for example, if you had the choice, how do you see the impact of, for example, data offering the value versus the collaboration, you know, adds the value with bringing people and collaborating and versus technology purely and automation just adds the value. Definitely. You know, it's so interesting you mentioned data because, you know, at a high level, it kind of depends on like what, you know, you're actually like selling in terms of the platform, you know, and that's kind of got to be paired with, you know, we say SaaS, but like there's also like multiple types of ways to monetize. So SaaS-based platforms, classically, there's performance-based monetization as well as like subscription-based monetization. And, you know, Winolo, we do both of them. And data feeds back into our customer's decision, right, at the, the renewal time on the subscription side, or even the performance marketing aspect to decide to use us again. And really the framework I like to think through is just what we call like growth loops. It's something that's kind of been like pioneered in the, uh, in the product industry for a little while now, but not just thinking about everything in like a funnel, but after the value is created, how do you flow that value through your customer and then back into you as a business to try and like make things stronger? And data is one of them, right? Customer comes, use our service, they post a bunch of jobs, they get you know some workers to come in. The workers do the jobs, you know, seven out of ten do them well, or you know, all, all of them do well, or all of them don't do well. How do we service that that the results of that back to the customer from a database perspective? So they can make intelligent decisions around, you know, should they continue to use us? And, you know, there's, there's definitely some things that you need to, to think through. The, the freshness of the data, the transparency of the data are really kind of the paramounts of, of understanding, you know, if the data is going to help you succeed or not. And when I say freshness, I mean, how late is the data from like the time it actually happens to the time you're showing it to the, the end user, your customer. You think about it, everybody will say like, oh, it should just be instant. It's like, yeah, well, that's a high cost, right? In terms of engineering standpoint to like really go build like what we would call near real time or sub seven second sharing of data. If you think about like um, the ticker in, you know, for the, the investment community, you'll see the ticker going along the bottom of like CNN or whatever. And it'll say like, Ticker, like, you know, prices are up to 15 minutes delayed, right? And, and you know what? For that audience, 15 minutes is perfectly fine, right? Because the speed and the freshness of the data are dictated 
by how fast you can respond to the data. And so if you can make a decision within 15 minutes of, of getting that fresh data, then you should aspire to have 15 minute fresh data. But if you're getting data and you can't do anything for a whole nother day, then it's okay to have that data be fresh, you know, every 12 to 24 hours. Um, Cause it's a lot easier on the engineering side and that, you know, the, the cost like analysis in terms of, you know, how much value you're, you're delivering versus how much additional es- extra engineering effort there is to just meet one of one of the aspects of the data, one of the two pillars of data in terms of freshness. I mean, that's a whole industry of in itself. And the other one that I spoke around, the transparency of the data, you know, people want to know how accurate your data is and what that means tactically is their ability to kind of like turn all the knobs, right? So they want data to be, you know, presented to them at some level of granularity, but the ability to like have everything tied up at the most minute, you know, detailed level really impacts customers' ability to trust what you're showing them. And so that that transparency around granularity and the freshness of the data are really the two powerful pillars for making data something to differentiate on. The value that you offer to our customers, it seems like the way it works, and I have seen it in many other services as well, makes the life easier over time, right? So the way you work by adding more data and adding more data and gaining more kind of like on both sides, right? So if I'm on Amazon, if I'm on LinkedIn, just based on my history on LinkedIn, my life gets easier because now I have more content. So people can go there. If I'm a new user versus I'm a user has been there for two years, probably it will help the audience to come in and on LinkedIn see more and educate them more about the company, about the person. So that's the value also of the data that the data gets there. Do you see that also as a kind of great value for the service that people who have used it can better use it and easier use it? Yeah, I mean, you know, you kind of touch on on the third pillar um, that I didn't mention, and that's how you receive the data, right? It's easy enough for all of us to like build some beautiful dashboard and expect our users to you know, go in and, and look at the data and turn all the knobs. But in SaaS, classically, you know, you have a variety of, you know, stakeholders at the customer level that are not the same user, right? You have maybe the operator who, who is in there, loves the dashboards, but then you have the operators like boss or maybe like the CFO, and they don't even want to log into your product. They want to report emailed to them or a distribution list and they want it in a very specific format, right? Like, you know, it's obviously a file format of .csv or whatever, but then exactly how the columns are structured, they want to be able to ingest your data directly into their process, workflows and processes and answer whatever question is on their mind, right? And like, you know, we see it a lot, like at Winolo, like the operators want to know, you know, how we're doing or what we call like fill or fill, right? Like if we asked for 100 people yesterday, how many did we get? 97 would be 97%. But then also the bosses want to know, you know, it's like, okay, well, at last week, how many do we ask and how well did we do? And what are some of the quality metrics that come out of it? And they want it in a very digestible format emailed to them. So they don't even have to look to us. So that third pillar of like kind of like data ingestion for your customer is really what separates the Amazons from, you know, the companies you never heard about. Yep, exactly. 
How do you feel on the product side? I wanted to now, you know, wear your hat as a kind of product, head of product and VP of product in the company. And I wanted to know from your perspective, because I have heard a lot of different varieties of, you know, how the product can work with the company. Like, for example, in some cases, product is very much close to engineering. In some cases, product is very close to the marketing side, to the sales side. And the reality is, on the product side, you have to work with every piece of the business, not just one. And probably, I guess that with kind of resources that every company has, at the end, it's limited. You know, you cannot make everyone happy because, you know, not every party can come to you and ask and you deliver everything to everyone and you have to make some decisions. How do you see from product standpoint that the way you are working with them, you can actually have that balance between the investment on the product capabilities that you do and the return on investment from that product perspective? Have you been able to somehow, you know, picture it for people to see it, that this is, you know, we are adding to the product investment we made, and this is the kind of returning on this investment. Awesome. It's a great question, Armand. Some of the answer is totally dependent on the size of your product org, right? So Winolo, we're in the process of scaling, you know, doubling headcount. And so we're finally at a place as, as a Series D company where we can say that, you know, each tech team, as we actually call them, is dedicated to a handful of users. And those end users, you know, while some of them are obviously customers or like workers, we also have end users internally. And so an end user internally might be the marketing team or the finance team. And they're the ones who have their own needs and their own problems. And so what we try and do is endeavor that a tech team either only has one end user or at max two end users. And so by that structure, you know, balancing our breadth throughout the organization is possible based on the scale we're at. Now, you could be at a smaller organization where maybe you only have like, you know, four tech teams or three tech teams and you can't even do that. Like there's just so much to do. But the saying that I like to is that all roads lead to product. And so eventually, you know, the tech team and product have to get involved and figure out to deliver the thing that is the most impactful and the simple like guiding light at least at Winolo and what i've learned over the years is that we like to optimize for delivering as much value as quickly as possible for our end users so who your end user changes what the value is changes but a simple value over cost you know framework will consistently produce results and continue to deliver value over time. And that's what you want to do to win, right? If you deliver more value over time to your end users than your competitors, you'll win. And, and what is this tech team is consist of? Is it the kind of complete stack of developers, QA, product kind of managers, or it's just the, you know, how do you structure these tech teams that are very much, as I understand, uh, end result driven and business driven, you know, kind of their objective is, you know, to accomplish that. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Great question. So uh, there's a lot of research on like feature teams versus like product teams. 
But I think the problem with the the, the term product team is that it kind of makes the PM seem like they're the end-all be-all, and it's really a flat organizational structure. And so Lisa Winolo, we've, we've broken up so that the tech organization is built by two functions, engineering and product. And then within product, we have product managers, product designers, product analysts, and user experience research, which is, you know, they're all trying to be as close as possible to the customer and solve their problems. A tech team is an autonomous team of product and engineering that tries to solve problems for an end user from a metric-based approach. And so we like to focus on outcomes over outputs. And so one of the things I tell my product managers is, I do not care about how many features you ship. I care about what metrics you move. I understand that they will have to probably ship features to move the metrics, but like a list of, here's all these features I shipped without any corresponding results from a metric standpoint, is not necessarily impactful. And that just goes back to kind of the philosophy around trying to help the business grow through product. If you don't focus on actually trying to grow business metrics, then you can end up with a bunch of stuff that doesn't really matter. That That's very, very interesting because essentially these product metrics, you don't want to have too many metrics. You don't want to have, you know, not enough metrics. So where do you draw the line to say, hey, you know, I have enough metrics that it doesn't distract people, but it helps, but also it provides a very clear picture and helpful. Yeah. Well, I think like here, here's, you know, where you get into, you know, distributed thinking and, and how that is a little bit different with a, from an agile team standpoint. So each team, each tech team has one North Star metric that they are trying to move. And it is a business metric and it is an outcome like metric, like retention or the activation rate. And it's on the PMs to figure out all of the nitty gritty details that are needed to kind of like move that. And, you know, you start thinking about retention. What does that mean? Uh, Well, that means that somebody came back and did something. Okay, well, there's probably some leading indicators in an engagement standpoint around hitting a button or you know, finalizing any other aspects of the the product that you can look at ahead of time. And so I tell my product managers to, you know, how do you get to move this North Star metric, this output metric? And it's on them to work with their teams and the other product analysts to indicate, you know, here are the engagement metrics that, that we should focus on ahead of time. And it's up to them to figure that out and tell a story. So I am not trying to understand all of the nitty gritty details you know, at my level about what moves the, the outcome metrics of these North Star metrics. That's on the product managers themselves. But it gives the the kind of like balance of, of granularity at the at the level that's needed versus um, the high level aspect that we're looking for at leadership to make sure that we're going in the right direction. It makes perfect sense. So then you get all of these North Stars and then all of them relates to the top kind of goal that you have for the business. So you essentially, you know, and, and that even that may help to understand how many of these tech teams you need. Because, for example, if then, you know, it, it needs to match to the North Star or the main goals and business objectives that you mentioned. So that's how you decide that this is the number of tech teams that we need to establish in the company. Exactly. The thing that's the most interesting is that no matter how complex your business is, 
the most successful you will ever be is if you can simplify it for everybody within the organization so that, you know, people, not just like, you know, the engineers and the product managers who live day to day, all these metrics has to be so simple that, you know, the, the support reps and the customer service, you know, customer success folks, you know, and the people who don't ever deal with, with the tech teams, like maybe directly can understand what the North star metric is here and be like, Oh, I get it. I know what you're trying to do. And, you know, most businesses can be broken down into just three like core like aspects, right? It's like acquiring customers, acquiring the customers, how many customers you have, and then how much money you make off the customers over time, right? So it might be like something like CAC, use, you know, active users and LTV, right? And there's a variety of ways to, to break that down. But if those are your three metrics, then growth could be simply done by lowering CAC. Growth could be simply done by raising the number of active users, or growth could be done by growing your LTV, right? And so, you know, how you take something like so simple and break it down in these complex businesses, particularly in the SaaS world, becomes really impactful really fast. Now, some of these metrics, let's say cost of customer acquisition, you know, that is very important because essentially if you... If you cannot lower that cost and increase the efficiency, it impacts directly your scalability. As a SaaS company, there is no way you can grow fast and you can scale if that cost cannot be, I would say, uh, manageable or can can be relatively speaking in a, in at a, at a reasonable ratio. Now, have you seen any of those, for example, may kind of conflict with another major? metric that you wanted to control because for example your customer satisfaction or because it's because of the you know the customer experience even during the sales process and then you are really having this kind of sometimes you know all of them are great aspects but sometimes it may impact each other in a way that now what do you do with regard to that right so that's that's the phase of the company in your perspective that you may say, well, from phase A to phase B, that can change, or it's from your perspective, normally has been pretty obvious which one you should emphasize. What is your kind of, you know, take on that? I mean, how much time do we have? <laughs> so let me let me give you a tactical example. I'll, I'll continue to use Winolo. Uh, uh, we understand how much it costs to acquire and activate a worker. And we could make that process less like it, we could make it cost less and one of the ways we can make it cost less is we could remove some of the steps in the funnel the activation steps in the funnel that we have specifically inserted to try and get higher quality um, higher quality workers right and so we could easily lower our customer acquisition costs but what we would what we'd want to look at is what we call a contra metric right it's well it's fine to say hey let's go lower our cac or our worker activation costs in this in this aspect. It's like we need to make sure that the workers are at like a certain threshold of quality, or else all the customers who you know get the temp staff workers, they're gonna say, I can't use Winolo anymore. There's the workers, you know, aren't great. And so the two contra metrics we might look at there are the the quality metrics that we have on the workers and or the customer retention of the people who look at there, right? And so now this framework of just trying to lower, you know, your worker activation costs, but we need to make sure that quality doesn't dip 
and that very specifically customers don't churn, you start to see all these parameters in place that make like doing something that you think might be easy actually like really hard, right? And that balance of opening up the funnel versus the impact on quality and and negative, you know, and churn is something that we play with all the time. Yeah, so it's it's really about optimization and that's the art of product management anyway to really, you know, optimize it in the best way. We have dashboards that show all the steps in the funnel and like, you know, if we have like a big drop in the funnel, you know, the product team, we get together and we talk about it. We say, what are the theses, right? What do we think is going on here? Do we have a lot of data? Do we have qualitative insights or quantitative insights that potentially impact our ability to, you know, come up with a potential solution? And we might look at the funnel and there might be a huge step and we might look at it and say, hey, like actually that step is where the worker has to agree to legal terms. and you know, we don't have any good theses around how to, to change that because like they have to check the box before they hit the accept button and changing that has too much legal risk. So we're not going to focus on this big drop off in the funnel because we don't have any good theses on how to address it. But this other place in the funnel, like where uh, workers take a picture, you know, which is maybe like the second highest drop off, not the first. It's like, well, we talked to, we, we asked the workers, hey, like, why didn't you finish taking the picture here? They said, oh, I wasn't ready. You know, I was like, okay, now we're ma- mapping qualitative insights with the quantitative aspect of seeing like the step in the funnel drop off and say, and we asked ourselves like, hey, can we move this to later in the process when maybe the worker expects it and, and is ready and not have any negative impact to the overall quality and therefore, you know, churn. And so those are the types of things that you have to go through as a product team and, and ask yourselves, like, not just where, but what, right? And if you have a strong thesis, then now you have something to build on and potentially go out and test. I would like to kind of have the last question about maybe a book that you can introduce to our audience. And also, I would like to ask you to explain about the blog that you have. So I know that you are writing a blog and probably there's a good synergy between, you know, the audience that we have here and the blog post. So if you could, you know, explain that on that front as well, that would be great. So I write a blog called On Product, himmelstein.substack.com. I'm sure the link will be in in the comments or whatever. Uh, And I just write tactically around like some of the things that you need to to do and invest in um, to be better as a as a product manager. So I got things like how to product plan, you know, how to write a, a, a PRD or product requirements document, how to A-B test, when should I A-B test, um, a lot of tactical advice. Um, so definitely give it a follow, it's free. And it's just kind of like the thoughts of, you know, my 10 or 11 years of experience and the conversations we have while we're scaling Winolo. On the book front, I recently finally read it, Trillion Dollar Coach. It is uh, about Bill Campbell, the coach of Silicon Valley. And one of the things that's most interesting about Bill Campbell is aside from being like the advisor to, you know, the Google co-founders and Steve Jobs and, you know, everybody you ever even like thought of like as a aspiring Silicon Valley, like mogul, the thing that Bill Campbell like taught more so than ever was that teams are what are successful. And when we talk about like, tech teams or a product team or even a leadership team, the ability to get more than the sum of its parts is one of the keys to success. 
And I definitely think you should take a take a look at the a trillion dollar coach. It's a great read, and you know, I got fondness in my heart for for Bill Campbell. Perfect. Thank you again for your time, Matthew. It was great speaking with you. Cool. Thank you so much, Armand. Thank you for listening to SaaS Scaled with Arman Ishragi. For show notes and any resources mentioned in today's episode, go to sasscaled.com. If you're enjoying our show, give us a five-star review and share on LinkedIn. And be sure to subscribe for any updates on future episodes. Thanks for listening. This episode is brought to you by Curve, the modern no-code analytics solution for SaaS companies on AWS. The tools you need to take action with your data on a platform built for maximum scalability, security, and cost efficiencies. If you're ready to reduce complexity and dramatically lower costs, then contact us today at curve.com. That's Q-R-V-E-Y dot com.